Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast. We spin the jams and spill the tea, and each week we come at you with some new music and music news, some discussion about the wider world of music and media. Absolutely, we do. And the first thing we have to talk about, the biggest music news story of the week is that the Beatles are back <laughs> back from the dead the Beatles have returned with their somehow single <laughs> Lennon has returned guys I've been saying for longer than I've been alive when are the Beatles gonna drop <laughs> we're overdue <laughs> and finally- Riley in 1990 I'm just I'm waiting I'm waiting. Waiting to be born. I know exactly. Well, not 1990, because it was 1995 that we last got new material from the Beatles for the release of the songs uh, Real Love and Free as a Bird, which were vault tracks that were remastered for their anthology compilation. That was a big That's ceremonious right. moment. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance and you know a lot of emotion surrounding it as well. But the Beatles have returned yet again. And by the Beatles, I mean Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and I guess Giles, what's his name? Martin? Giles Martin. Why is I, I keep wanting to say Corey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a very different kind of song. Uh, Giles Martin, behind the boards. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about this new Beatles song. A lot of words have been said. A lot of takes have been dropped. Uh, Beatles fans have been extremely defensive on the site youtube.com you know it's interesting kind of how it's highlighted this distinction I think between you know a certain generation of Beatles fans who have this hugely sentimental attachment to experiencing the Beatles living through the Beatles there be a kind of sustained relationship with that music across the course of many decades versus newer listeners who are passionate about the Beatles who are fans of the Beatles because you can't not like the Beatles but don't have that sense of uh relationship through that sort of core era when they were a band you know when their kind of solo careers were really kind of in full gear and you know experiencing the loss of John and then George and of course experiencing events like the release of Anthology as well and the release of those songs so while there's been a huge amount of uh sentimentality surrounding the song and it is a very sentimental song paul and ringo have released it and in a kind of lit it into the ether in a kind of very sentimental way uh including the accompaniment of uh, a particular music video by peter jackson which we'll get to once we've sort of overviewed the song itself you know the demos existed ever since the beatles were a band but one of the issues with getting it to this point where it's releasable is the fact that the vocal and piano demo that John Lennon recorded was recorded in such a way where the vocals could not be isolated from the piano track. So it was impossible to kind of remaster it properly. It was impossible to kind of um, figure out how to fully complete it essentially until those two different parts of the song could be isolated. And now with um, the machine AI technology that exists that Peter Jackson used um, and as part of the production process for his hugely successful series Get Back, the remaining Beatles were able to kind of finish the song, essentially. And there's this question of to what extent can we know 
how much John or George would have approved of this. You know, George was on record in the 90s saying he hated the song. It's very difficult to tell, you know, how John would feel about this, even though the song, the demo itself was left, uh, you know, in a tape that was addressed to Paul specifically. There's a whole bunch of lore behind this song that's kind of created some of the more um, feverish responses and, and debates around the song. The song itself is good, I think. It's a solid Beatlesy song. It really plays on that nostalgia factor and it's and that sentimentality. It's a very sad song. It's a song about, you know, wistful longing and wanting things to kind of be the way that they were, but having to come to terms with the kind of, you know, the reality of, of how time passes and how things are lost. Um, there's, of course, the added dimension of the fact that, you know, the vocals are being sung by John Lennon. The song was written by John Lennon. It's a song about loss and wistfulness and nostalgia and pain from someone whose loss and the pain of that has been, you know, the sharpest event in, you know, Beatles history post the breakup of the band. So, yeah, there's a lot of emotions around it. I think it's a beautiful song that is... <laughs> unfortunately hindered by the conditions of its release and by the very process that was needed to finish it i don't know if either of you have heard the demo but i, I did it took a wee second to go back and listen to the demo and there's a kind of haunting frailty to it something powerful i think that's kind of lost in this attempt to process and separate and and recreate it essentially and augment it whether it's George's guitar playing itself or Paul playing in the style of George or both, there's the direct allusions to George are, you know, add an additional level of, of, of depth to it. And of course, hearing the Beatles together all on a song, even if it is an illusion, you know, that's a hugely emotional thing at this point in time. But there's just something, the song struggles, I think, to get away from the uncanny valley of its creation. And it's so audible in the way that John sounds on the song. Um, Jack, I know you feel kind of similarly about it on that level. Yeah, it's weird because I'm probably the biggest Beatles fan on this podcast. And I was mostly kind of lukewarm on the song. And upon revisiting it, I discovered that it's mostly because of the way that it sounds. All of the vocal tracks in this song just sound like inhumanly glossy, like to the point where it melds into the song in a way that feels kind of unflattering, trying to compensate for the artifacts that come with isolating the vocal track, specifically with Lennon's uh, vocals, uh, with AI. So there's a lot of compression in this song, which isn't inherently bad. The song doesn't sound like a complete like wash or anything. It's just, there is something about it that feels distinctly zombified. And like, I don't have like a, a personal objection to it or like uh like it, it's not something that in principle i am opposed to or anything in fact i think it's kind of a net good that the song was released even in the state that it's in just to 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 have it to examine it and clearly a lot of people are really enjoying it and any excuse to talk about the beatles in any context is kind of nice just because online music discussion these days is so saturated with like overbearing negativity and all these things that we try to separate this show from. So whenever people talk about the Beatles these days, like kind of like when the get back documentary got made, it's this 
weird sort of unification I see on the internet where everybody just kind of goes back and starts talking about, you know, the biggest, most important rock band in history. And it becomes kind of a fun exercise, this cultural participation that everybody's weighing in on. And I find that way more like interesting than I do maybe the song itself. So I like that we're talking about the Beatles again. Uh, I just kind of wish that the song was a little bit more interesting or or something I, it's 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 missing a certain je ne sais quoi i suppose it's very much like what you would expect a kind of late era beatles ballad to sound like it's it's an okay song it's good i i like the lyricism more than i like anything else a part of it but it's uh interesting just to examine in a vacuum just because i feel like we don't really have a precedent for anything like this i don't feel like anything like this has ever happened before at least not to my knowledge but it's an interesting curio to be sure yeah i mean i like the song a lot i think that the the strings that are added are really tasteful and really beautiful and i think yeah those are nice um paul's bass playing obviously is great and ringo's drumming is obviously great and it's really nice to be reminded of how good those two were at those specific things uh and uh really the drums the real killer and again we've alluded to it it's just and again it's especially apparent i think when you go back and listen to the demo it's just that i think john's vocal performance on the song is heartbreaking like it's a really really sad vocal performance that really rings a lot of emotion out of you you know whether it comes from john's loss or whether it comes from just the the melody and the lyrics of the song itself or elements of both you know i think it's a really powerful vocal performance and the the unavoidable truth is that in order to separate it from the piano track in order to kind of properly remaster it elements of that vocal performance had to be sacrificed and then replaced uh, using the ai technology it's an inescapable reality when i listen to the song that i am hearing and it's not just like a I can hear it like, you know, uh, it's an, it's inescapable to me that there's an added flatness to the vocal, not even just in terms of mixing and mastering and engineering, which you've touched on um, beautifully, Jake, but just the sound of the vocal itself is flatter. And, and because it's being compensated by this technology, which is aiming to kind of capture the core of how John's voice sounds on each of these notes without, you know, any of the added nuance that the actual vocal performance has. And I'm not saying it's completely transformed, but I'm just saying there's enough of it. There's artifacts within the um, vocal recording as well that just make it feel like you said, uncanny is the is a right word for it. Morgan, do you have any additional thoughts on this? So I, th- I think the song is decent. It's easy to see how it could be a, great song and the sort of artificiality of it is standing in its current state anyway is sort of standing in the way of that because i mean it just feels like two different points in time bizarrely kind of clashing together Mm. which leads directly into the peter jackson directed music video for this song which directly collides two different points in time in fact three different points in time are collided in this music video sometimes within the same frame and i'm not saying that like it's an inherently bad thing but it is jarring and at points it is ill-conceived i think would be fair yes yeah um it's it's odd because you know in one frame you'll have paul mccartney and 
Ringo Starr solemnly playing their instruments. And in the very next frame, uh, John Lennon is doing some David Byrne-esque dance moves uh, in, a, in a clip ripped from time itself. There's, a, there's an amazingly funny uh, cutaway in that video where, you know, it's mm-hmm. the more contentious moments of the video where John is maybe doing some some physical uh, gestures that maybe some might find offensive. Uh, and it just cuts away to Paul, and he's just got the most vacant expression on his face, just staring into space. I think, to be fair to Paul, I think that was probably captured in a moment of wistfulness for him, you know, rem- remembering mm-hmm. John. And the way that the, the edit happens, it's implying, that, you know, Paul is remembering that. But there's just something about the way Paul's eyes look and the way that his mouth is kind of half open that just makes it look like he's kind of completely on a, in another planet. It's so funny. Like if I taught like a cinematography class, I would use this music video as a flawless example of what flat cinematography looks like. The integration of the old footage and the new footage causes there to be this kind of like, it's kind of like the song weirdly in that there is a glossy sheen around everything that looks very dry and very like everything's in perfect focus and you can just sort of tell what is from what era based on like there's these little tiny uncanny differences and it's very very bizarre of an aesthetic clash like watching it feels wrong in a way that the get back documentary which employed a similar way of like remastering the the footage for that did not look at all when i watched it like even remotely you know in a way i think that the 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 difference between those different eras not just in how they look obviously because they're like 20 years 30 years of age difference between them in a way i think it's supposed to look marked like it's supposed to look you know that contrast is supposed to be sharp and I think that's kind of part of what Peter Jackson's going for is, you know, the inexorable march of time and how, you know, things change and that change is irrevocable. But it does sort of clash, I think, with the feeling of the music video as well, which doesn't really have any kind of nuance in its emotionality. It's just pure sentimentality. It's just pure, let's bring, you know, these people who have passed into this era with these people who are, you know, still here and fill those gaps in. It's just weirdly hallmarky, you know, especially that early shot which looks completely like AI to me of the beach, you know, mm. with the sunset and it just kind of, the cameras just sort of um, tilting back and there's a kind of silhouetted John steering wistfully. It's absolutely, it looks terrible and it looks, un- it's funny in a way it shouldn't be as well because it's supposed to make you feel really sad and it doesn't. Well, it, it does. It makes me feel sad that it doesn't look better. And the green screen in general, when you're having, um, you know, all four of them on the screen looks awful. Like it just looks so bad. Bad. And I, I think as well that the flatness of the way that they're kind of intercut, you know, adds to that. I think it, 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 it's, and again, I feel a little bit bad being so negative about it because it's clearly like, an, it's clearly meant to be an honest and loving tribute. And I certainly don't begrudge anyone who enjoys it on that level or who thinks it's a great no. idea. A lot of people do, but it is, um, you know, it's it's amusing how it exaggerates some of the limitations of the song, uh, and and in some ways even makes the experience of the song less enjoyable while the video's on. Yes, I, I feel like a much better solution to this problem 
I mean, again, this is just purely speculative of like what I would do if I was given the task of making the music video for this is that a way of capturing that I feel like would be if you had Paul and Ringo, you know, kind of as they are, at least maybe capture some different footage just for the sake of intercutting it in a way that feels like it makes a bit more sense. But maybe get you know, Sean Ono Lennon or uh, George Harrison's kid, uh, Donnie Harrison, and get them perhaps, because I know they're both musicians, and maybe get them to do some of those parts because that way you could kind of have, like, you, you have the physicality of all of the performers yeah. there and you can shoot around that. And also it definitely, you know, it has that bittersweet nostalgia of like, you know, these two people aren't here anymore, but we have the remnants of their past in the form of their children who can, you know, they can pay tribute to their parents in a really kind of unique and interesting kind of way. And I feel like that would capture a, a bit of the melancholy a bit better, you know? I like that idea. It doesn't help that there are cut a few cutaways to George and John in particular, where it's like his ass is not singing this song, or his <laughs> no. ass is not playing guitar. It's a, it's especially jarring when the four of them are in the frame together, and John is like not even hitting the guitar strings <laughs> when he's playing, and it's like, like what? Are you, okay. And videos, like a lot of the time, like ninety percent of videos, if you really watch them, you know, and they feature someone playing. You know the the instruments that really doesn't look like they're playing what you're hearing right now. I know that's a thing, but just like in the context of what this video is trying to do, it's especially like egregious to me. It just seems so. I don't want to say low effort because I'm sure the people at Weta had to do an awful lot. Oh yeah, uh, to make this look the way that it did. But and conceptually, this is, this feels really low effort. You would think this band deserve demands a little more pomp and circumstance, I guess. Like I, I would employ like an animation studio to just sort of get Ooh. really out there with it, especially if you want to play with sort of these moments in time meeting together. I mean, I think there's loads you could do there. I mean, animation is baked into the history of the Beatles because of, you know, like the Yellow Submarine movie and stuff. So you could do something in the style of that that could be really like tasteful and like just cool generally speaking like animated music videos in general are just a vastly underappreciated art form speaking of new singles i want to shout out this new song from mgmt finally we were we it's were been 84 years it's called mother nature it is the lead single from their upcoming album loss of life coming out in february 2024 we have been waiting a while you know, for this new MGMT album, it has been six years since Little Dark Age, which was, you know, one of the big sort of return to form comeback records of the 2010s. One of those albums like um, The Strokes' New Abnormal, where it was like, it felt like as soon as it came out, everyone was saying, you know, this is not just a great comeback record. This is actually their best album. Um, and it's a, it's interesting because it's like, for me, in the case of both Little Dark Age and The New Way of Normal, I don't think it's their best album, but I definitely agree that it was like a really strong moment where the band quite unexpectedly reassert themselves as a really powerful uh, and important rock band at that particular moment in time and, and make them and completely kind of reignite their cachet after it had been long dead. So yeah, ever since that, I've been itching for more mgmt little dark age is a record to be fair that has aged incredibly well it gets better the more time goes on um the best songs on that record have really kind of stood out and, and stood the test of time to be some of their best songs and 
to be honest, this new song, Mother Nature, is no different. This is an incredible song. It sounds beautiful. It's pristine, tunes into their strengths and has me feeling more than ever that they might be kind of heading in a more sort of classic sounding direction, which, you know, if you'd said that around the release of Congratulations, it would have sounded like a joke. But uh, MGMT aging gracefully is, is in, you know, in some respects, one of the most subversive things they can do for how reactionary of a band they were in their early era. Uh, I, I love this song. I, I am really excited for the album. I'm really excited to see if the whole album bears out the way that this sounds. The record does have production credits uh, along with Fridman from Danger Mouse and One Tricks Point Never. Uh, so I am Ooh. curious to see how it ends up shaking out. Um, that Danger Mouse uh, credit in particular has me thinking this might be sort of their wide awake. Uh, and that's a really that was a really oh. really strong moment for Parquet Courts as well. A really like polished record after a period of not really having made a record like that. So yeah, curious to see how this shakes out. There's a subsection of people that are very very disappointed that the sort of like after Little Dark Age came out, there was a sort of split single released from uh, I think the same sessions at least for uh, In the Afternoon and As You Move Through the World, which are two of the most beloved MGMT songs at this point, uh, and they're not going to be on the album. And yeah, it's disappointing because I agree, those are two of their best songs, and I love the idea of MGMT basically making a gothy Bauhaus album, which is what those songs sound like. Um, but at the same time, I'm not like displeased with this new direction whatsoever. I adore Little Dark Age. I need to go back and hear Congratulations because that's been on my list forever. But I'm I'm super stoked. Easily one of my most anticipated albums of the year. Who could have predicted that MGMT would release the best Beatles song in a week where the Beatles also released a song? You know, yeah, I, I, I gotta say, I was not expecting to click on this song when it came out and hear uh smashing pumpkins melancholy b-side but you know <laughs> yeah that's, pretty cool. that's a good comp but like dave fridmanized so it's really beautiful but it also sounds really loud for, yeah. for no clear reason Dope. so maybe an adore b-side <laughs> want to talk a bit now about an album from a band who you know by sheer force of will is going to be the band we have discussed the most on this podcast because not only are they determined to keep releasing albums at an unhealthy rate they're also determined to keep making them good and interesting enough for us to be completely unable to ignore them and just say oh yeah they've got another album out and of course talking about king gizzard and the lizard wizard a band who when we started this podcast when we kind of first talked about them i was in a period where i was like massively agnostic towards them i was like i didn't get the hype around king gizzard lizard wizard i thought nonagon infinity was cool but i don't understand that you really said it was one of the best rock albums of the 2010s i thought so many of the albums to put out after that were underwhelming compared to the hype i just could never really get behind them you know as much as i wanted to I remember distinctly thinking that the album they put out, KG in 2020, was probably my favorite record that I'd heard of theirs. That's how agnostic I was towards their previous records. But God damn it, these guys have just been on a streak where they have not only fleshed out their concepts and I think delivered more expansive and varied albums while retaining the kind of conceptual approach they had in the 2010s. They've also pushed themselves into starker and stronger and more, you know, vividly shocking new directions with these more recent projects than we could have expected. 
to the point where I think that this new album, The Silver Chord, is the best record that King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard have made that I've heard anyway. I can't, admittedly, there's a few I haven't heard. But for this to top the uh, Ice, Death, Dragons, Mountains, New Warm, I Believe in You, whatever it was they put out last year, <laughs> for this to top that, I was not expecting. I was expecting to enjoy this ever since they led with a press release calling it a, you know, talking about the influence of progressive electronic movie music of the 70s, prog music of the 70s, um, you know, artists like Kraftwerk and Noi and all that sort of stuff. When they were talking about that, I was locked in. I was like, okay, you have my attention. But even then, I wasn't expecting this to deliver for me in a way that exceeded some of the great highs that they've already delivered in the last two years, like the Ice album, like Omnium Gatherum, and like the KGLW duology. King Desert, a band who have kind of staked themselves in the last four or five years on this thing of, of changing their identity from album to album as dramatically as possible. This is one of the most dramatic changes in the sense that this has got to be, at least again, from what I've heard, one of the Giz albums with the the least guitar uh, and the the most focus on these sort of electronic walls of synthesizers. Uh, it's an incredibly ambitious and freewheeling and ridiculous album. It has the structural conceit of presenting itself in the form of these bite-sized tracks that add up to about 27 minutes of music before pulling the rug and revealing actually you thought that was the album no motherfucker the real album is the next 90 minutes where all seven of these songs unfold to eye-watering durations that somehow never stop being interesting multifaceted unfolding in really really creative ways it helps if you are a fan of the reference points that King Gizzard are pulling from here, which are primarily those progressive electronic artists that I've talked about, but also a wider swathe of prog rock, as well as even hip hop and techno of the 80s and 90s. There are a series of aesthetic choices that unfold across this album that continually left me gobsmacked, uh, particularly with how fluidly they were executed and how flawlessly they were integrated into the wider fabric of what they are doing this to me is one of the most integrative uh king gizzard albums in terms of how many different styles and points of references are put together here again even more so than ice death etc which was itself a really genre fluid album that almost switched genres from song to song here you have the genres melded together into this just kind of colossus. And no greater is the divide between the two different versions of this album illustrated in the fact that the lead song, Thea, is three minutes in its original version and 20 in its extended version. The, the structural thing's interesting, and I think we'll, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about that, but I want to just sort of get more of a specific response from you, Jake, on the music itself and what you think King Gizzard are doing here with the stylistic shift and how you feel about this particular album in terms of the music before we get to the structure stuff. Well, Riley, if you were worried about your declaration of this being their best album, uh, let me put those worries to rest as someone who's heard every King Gizzard album. This is their best. When it comes right down to it, in the week and a half that this album has been out and that I've been listening to it 
not in terms of the amount of songs that I've re-listened to, but in terms of how much time I have spent this year listening to 2023 releases, I don't think I've listened to something more than I've listened to the Silver Chord. This thing is absolutely fucking incredible start to finish. Like I started, I kind of dipped my toes in the water with the, I guess, kind of the single edit of the extended versions of the songs just to get a taste for what the album was like. Uh, and I sort of got around to the point where I just started listening to the whole thing, like even though I'm technically listening to it twice, uh, just so I could get a firmer grasp on what's going for. And the extended versions of these songs are everything I have ever wanted from this band. And it's so weird because it's them doing something that is further off the mark than they've ever done in terms of stylistic departures. Like this just doesn't resemble anything that they've made at any point. And listening to this, the more and more I did, the more like in love with it I felt to the point where I think this is definitively one of the best albums of the year and that I am like, it's tantalizingly close to me giving it like a perfect score, frankly. It is one of the most like adventurous things that they've ever made, but their dedication to the bit is positively fucking unparalleled. Like the 20 minutes I spend listening to the opener, Thea, is some of the most vibrant and resplendent music I've heard all year this decade even i fucking love this song so much there's elements of neo psychedelia there's elements of space rock uh that sort of uh again craft work the sort of acid techno there's 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 so much stuff here they're like the 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 king giz boys love for this area of music as it were is so evident and on display but it's not just a hollow tribute i guess uh, a lot of people i guess who you know haven't boarded the king gizzard train uh might often accuse them of you know dabbling into these genres and feeling a bit i guess surface level which i've never felt personally like i feel like there are definitely times where they do it better than they do other times for certain uh but i've just never had the the issue where it feels like they don't completely understand what it is that they're taking from. And I feel like of all of their records, this feels like they're demonstrating the most fundamental understanding of their influences and combining it into something positively titanic and huge and fun. But it also has a lot of the hallmarks of what make great King Gizzard albums King Gizzard albums. There is a sort of unfolding narrative throughout the course of the record about the idea of this silver cord, the this kind of universal constant that connects all living things. And this is how they sort of interweave their usual kind of environmental themes. But this is on like a more grand, more cosmic scale. And the more I listen to this, the more I was like, I kind of understand why this album seems to be like one of the least adored King Gizzard albums by like the fan base is that a lot of people just aren't as into this, especially when you compare it to Petrodragonic Apocalypse, which came out earlier this year and was rapturously received. An album that I love for the record. I've listened to that album tons. But one of the interesting things about this is that Silver Chord is kind of a sister album to that record. Because when you listen to the extended mixes of this songs, each of them have like a parallel to a track on Petrodragonic Apocalypse where they interpolate the chorus from those songs into this 
in a way that recontextualizes the narrative that we saw on that album as well. So there's a really great intertextuality going on here that I haven't cracked the full sort of scope of, but I'm curious to keep like exploring it just to see how it unfolds and see what connections I can draw between these two records because they are two of King Gizzard's strongest. These songs specifically crib from acid techno and even kind of hip hop on stuff like set. And man, these songs just fucking bang. I want to dance every moment that they're on. All 12 minutes of something like Gilgamesh, for example, which has this amazing drony sort of hook on it that's so weird sounding and adventurous and cool. This is easily, in my opinion, the best produced King Gizzard album. Um, not to say that their production has ever been a problem, but I mean, again, it's the scope that they give these mixes that just make you feel like you're being shot out of a cannon and just like going out into space and experiencing the fucking cosmos. So the band presented this in, in such a way where it's like, here's the album and here's the extended mixes, you know, part of it nodding to, you know, the way that a lot of artists would have to do this in the seventies and that kind of era yep. of, of, of disco and, and Stu McKenzie's referred specifically to Donna Summer's work with Giorgio Moroder as well. And the way that the songs are like 20 minutes, but the single edits like four. You can feel that. The implication of that is that the extended mixes are the album and the shortened mixes are kind of just short bridge but what really what's curious about that is the way that the the album is presented such that it looks like the shorter versions are intended to be the, the album and the extended mixes are intended to be a bonus so i'm not quite sure wh why they presented it in that way uh the reason why i feel pretty confident in saying that the extended mix is the intended full version of the album is that the shorter mixes aren't just like shorter versions of the songs they're like very clearly edits of the songs the uh, transitions between tracks is kind of inelegant uh it's clear when the, they decide you know and, and if when you listen to the full mixes you can hear like a lot of the time the shortened mixes are just the first three or four minutes of the song uh not yeah. like different parts of the song stitched together but just the first part of the song i think that's kind of the the winking sort of inside joke uh, as well because that was often the case with uh the reference points as well as the, the edits were just the start of the song they were never like trying to capture the fullness of the song and then the the way that the original version of the album ends like extinction just has a really kind of bizarre abrupt fade out that doesn't really yeah the song at all so it's like i feel like there's a little bit of a winking sort of playfulness with the way that presentation is is kind of given where it's like you know you think this is the album so you think okay i'll listen to this i'll listen to the album i've got it done in 30 minutes okay great and then the real album's like an easter egg for the fans who like see through that and are willing to kind of keep going uh i kind of like the idea i don't know this is what the they're actually trying to do but i like the idea of like disguising your album as the bonus tracks i think that's just <laughs> a really funny thing to do I want to echo what you said about Thea, which is just a stratospheric opening song. The way that yeah. it slowly builds up and then completely just sort of pulls you in, you know, two or three minutes into this kind of massive uh, spectacle. It's it's incredible. It reminds me so much of the like experiences I had as a really, really young kid, you know, being exposed to the kind of albums that this is referencing, the kind of music where it's like an understanding of music where the whole 
piece of music is this expansive lengthy journey that you're kind of you know immersed within you know a lot of people like my dad who grew up in the 70s are used to kind of their idea of music kind of being contextualized by that very long form you know pretentious massively indulgent era of music right and so for me having been growing up on those records through my dad you know it's massively nostalgic to not just hear that spirit being captured in terms of you know these are really really long pieces of music but the specific sounds are so familiar to me as well like the synthesizers you know the the drum machines this record goes crazy on drum machines there's a particular um sort of hissing piston percussion sound that sounds like it's just kind of a, a bolt of reverb that's very 70s to me it reminds me a lot of craft work and even like some of the proto electronic music of the late 60s as well and they use that a lot on the album one thing that's interesting is that i agree they really do sound like they've kind of mastered the new gear essentially that they're working with on this record but it is interesting to know that it was a case of them learning very quickly how to work with uh, instruments they weren't familiar with playing and in a style they weren't familiar with doing. And so I think it's doubly impressive how professional and confident it sounds, given that this is not something they've been practicing for a while. And that's the thing I think with other Gizzard records where I've kind of been more of a fan of the more recent stuff is I feel like with a lot of their genre bending, it's taken them a while to really get good at it to the extent that it's not just pastiche but it's actually them taking the template and and doing something really outrageous with it that's why i think i connect a little bit more with the more recent records it feels like they've had enough time to practice and kind of get the kinks out so for them to move into this kind of jammy progressive electronic style so just cleanly is is doubly impressive to me um you know, one of our favorite, one of the, a song that I know you and I absolutely loved last year, a song that was like a, a highlight of the year for us was the dripping tap off of uh, On mm-hmm. the Gathering. And I remember when that came out, I remember listening to that. That's and right. It was like, how the fuck did they do this? Like, how the fuck did they create this massive sweeping, like 18 minute song that just completely captivates you and keeps you pulling on with its energy? And for them to be able to do that, in completely different style uh, multiple times over with this record is, is incredible. Um, most of the bands they reference, you know, would be lucky if they could pull off something like what one of these tracks do three or four times and call that an album, but they do it, you know, almost twice that much. I haven't still haven't listened to Petro Dragonic, but I did do enough research to pick up on the fact that this is apparently a companion record. Um, both records continue the preoccupation of the band with environmental catastrophe, something that was a huge theme on the records they put out last year as well, uh, continues to be a big fascination and focus. The, that is intertwined here with a smorgasbord of mythological reference points. Oh, yeah. There's, um, Greek mythology and Thea. Then there's Egyptian mythology in Set, and then there's Chinese mm-hmm. mythology in Chanja, and then there's biblical mythology in Gilgamesh. It's like they're doing mm-hmm. a sweep of mythologies across this album. You know, while admittedly the substance of their employment of this sort of stuff is not really hugely of interest to me, there's a level of commitment and a level of like, understanding of how to kind of get your compositions to reflect the themes of the ideas you're exploring where you can tell that this is a record that gets darker and more intense and more 
kind of cataclysmic as it goes on. You know, the early stages of the record, I think, are where it's at its most fun. And then the final three tracks of Gilgamesh, Swan Song and Extinction are where, you know, some of the progressive elements are at their least pronounced and some of the just raw, heavy industrial techno elements are much more pronounced, especially I think in a song like Swan Song, which has just this gritty, brutal, just grimy synthetic bass feel to it while it's like kind of pushing you through this like intensely violent techno beat that just kind of boom 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 propulsion that comes through on some of those later tracks i think that the shining moment is the title track on this record i think that is the best song in the album one of the best pieces of music they've ever put out that i've heard certainly go can go toe to toe with dripping tap or anything else you know, it starts in this, you know, kind of almost amusingly sort of Easterny place with this kind of like, it's almost new agey in a kind of cheesy, cheap way. But then like they kind of fuse that with these really weirdly um, affected vocals that sound like a kind of futuristic sort of robot-y thing that mm-hmm. you know, Jeff Lynne might do in a kind of ELO record in the 70s. And then the whole thing, and that's the part you get in the shorter version, right? But then after that, the part you don't get in the shorter version is the fucking massive techno breakdown that completely takes over the rest of the song. I was not expecting to be reminded of like, you know, Orbital and 808 State and those like kind of British 90s acid techno bands of that early era so much by fucking King Gizzard of all bands. It's incredible. Like that's the most nostalgic shit on the record is that stuff because my dad fucking obsessed with that kind of shit. I was raised on that and I was not expecting to get it from King Gizzard, even coming off the back of Thea, which is like so, you know, 70s to me, getting this kind of infusion of 90s sounds but really chintzy, dated, you know, unfashionable 90s sounds. And so it was such a nice surprise. Set is one of the biggest fucking bangers that they've dropped. Mm. Just this ridiculously insistent groove. There's a little bit of 90s house that comes through in the back half of the song. I was particularly reminded of early Daft Punk by some of the sounds like homework era. Daft Punk came through in some of the uh, keyboard tones in the back half of this. You have multiple tracks on here which feature this incredibly cheesy wrapped delivery. You know, there's a particular era where it was like, um, you know, the ascendance of hip hop and the ascendance of kind of psychedelic electronic music was kind of colliding in the very end of the 80s. And there was this particular era where this particular fusion of those two called Hip House was really fashionable. If you go back and listen to some Hip House tracks, I promise you they're some of the most dated music you will ever hear in your life. A lot of it sounds terrible, but if you heard it as a child, it kind of imprinted itself on your brain. And um, that specific style of like kind of bad, but really groove intense hip hop comes through on a song like Gilgamesh and some of the vocal deliveries. And it's some of my favorite shit on the whole album. It's just so ridiculously campy. I absolutely adore this album. I completely fall on head over heels for it. Morgan, I want to throw over to you now on this new Gaslight Anthem album, History Books. And Jake and I haven't had a chance to listen to this yet, but obviously Gaslight Anthem are a band we all love, but I know you in particular have a you know a, a relationship with this band. We just talked about the Menzingers a week ago, and this mm. week... I couldn't help but think about the parallels between these two bands kind of coming back at this particular point in time. Obviously it's more momentous for Gaslight because of their first album in nine years after an actual breakup or breakup, hiatus, whatever. 
So what are you, what are your thoughts on the new record? Um, I, 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 I'm sure that the parallel with, with Menzo has occurred to you as well. What are your thoughts on Gaslight in particular at this point in time? Uh, and how do you feel about this new record? Nine years since Get Hurt, pretty universally seen as the least good Gaslight Anthem album, which I agree with. Um, I, I think it's I don't think it's a bad album at all, but it just has stretches of being sort of middling. Mm. And that is not a yeah. problem that any of their other albums have. I think um, uh, Brian, to be fair, Brian Fallon has said basically the same thing in an interview with Steve Hyden this week. He did a rank your records or a review your albums uh, feature on Upper Rocks with Steve Hyden. He said, yeah, we kind of, he, he likes a lot of the songs on Get Hurt, but he does think that they sort of, you know, there was an element of difficulty in getting that record made for a number of reasons that, you know, he acknowledges yeah, the weaknesses of it. So I find that to be interesting when, bands end up kind of agreeing with the consensus in that sense yeah and it's 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 interesting being nine years on from that and very limited touring and basically a whole hiatus for them to come out with history books at the end of it first two singles were positive charge and uh the title track featuring none other than bruce springsteen i love both of them and i'm also not sure why they sound the way that they sound positive charge in particular I think goes for uh, almost like a sink or swim era sound from them. It starts off really heavy and really high energy, um, but it, the production choices that are made there sort of it emulates sink or swim in a way that that record didn't really even have in itself in the sort of lo-fi muddier context. But the, I, th- I think the song itself is excellent, and History Books suffers some some similar problems, particularly on the guitar solo, which is like just sounds terrible for some reason but i think overcomes it even more just with really quality songwriting and a great bruce springsteen feature and the album overall i think is really strong it's a it's a great sort of shake the dust off of your shoulder you know knock loose the cobwebs from your attic sort of album some excellent songs on it not just off of the singles. I'm particularly fond of uh, opening track Spider Bites, Autumn, and Michigan 1975. I think the first half of this record in general is really strong. Um, and it sort of tapers off quality-wise, where it becomes a little more uh, mid-tempo and atmospheric, which is something is not you know new territory for the Castlight Anthem, but it's something they're doing here, and I just don't think they sound as self-assured in these moments as they do on other parts of the album and in parts of their career where they've done this before. But overall, I think this is a really strong effort and I really hope they can capitalize on this new era of theirs and really give it their all with both, you know, both naturally a tour. I want touring to go well for them. I mean, this is a band that I've been wanting to see live since I found them, but I also hope it it carries over into just further musical ventures for them. And I hope they can just keep this, this momentum moving as much as possible. One of my favorite takeaways from the interview I read is that, you know, I, I think without Bruce Springsteen, this probably would have happened anyway, but actually it was Bruce's enthusiasm that fast tracked this because as soon as Brian had a few songs written and he started thinking, you know, these are more gaslight anthem songs than solo songs the first person he called was bruce springsteen to ask for advice and bruce just completely without hesitating said yeah go for it get the band back together man 
Yeah, it's just like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Thank like, you. You're just Bruce. sitting around. And Bruce actually volunteered to be on the song. Like he wasn't asked. He's like, Can I that's, be on a song? That's so fucking cool. Yeah. So I'm really looking for the only reason I haven't listened to it yet is I kind of want to do all their albums because I've still only listened to 59 sound. So that's you you a should. That's one. a deep dive worth taking. Yeah. I have no excuse not to. At the very least, I have no excuse not to jump back and listen to Sink or Swim, um, like ASAP. I want to shout out an album called Would You Miss It by a band called Koyo, K-O-Y-O. This is their debut record. I think maybe what at least caught my attention when I did find it is the pedigree of people who feature on the album, namely... uh, yeah, Anthony DiDio of Vein FM and Fleshwater fame and uh, Daryl Palumbo from Glassjaw have both have features on the album. This is maybe the most infectious pop punk album I've heard this year. There's something about the the lead singer's voice being not at all typical of the genre. It's a lot more hardcore. I think it really works. And the thing is just absolutely lousy with the hooks. The production is flawless harmonies and overlaid guitar lines and the loudest drums you've ever heard in your life. It all delivers it at such an excellent pace over the course of 32 minutes. This has, again, become one of my most listened to releases of the year. Really excellent debut from these guys, and I really am looking forward to what this band turns into and how they evolve, because there's... I mean, especially with the in the the features that they have on here, there's I think this is a band with even more on their minds, or at least probably will be a band with more on their minds than just uh, making excellent pop punk records. It feels to me that they're coming out of a scene that's a little more diverse than just your average pop punk band, and I hope to see those influences play out a little more. Last thing I want to mention, music wise, in terms of news, is uh, it was this amusing story today where uh sleaford mods canceled a concert mid-song because a fan threw a free palestine scarf at them uh and and they went on to bemoan the way in which they've been forced to take a political stance on something which they know nothing about and look the reason i mention this is just because i feel like we should kind of get it out there that we're absolutely on the side of the Palestinian people. Not that we're a podcast that feels the need to make broad political statements all that often, but just the more this keeps coming up in the world of music as well, the more I'm like, this is, I, 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 I just be normal, you know, be, have a fucking heart, you know? So yeah, yeah. it is not normal to see here and be like, we did, we, we have no stance on this when it's literally, it's an apartheid state. Mm. That's not normal behavior. It's yeah. it's like it, it it boils down to this. Like there's obviously a lot of historical nuance and a lot of things, but people are using that as a scapegoat to basically just have nothing to do with it. To just say carte blanche and just be like, no, but it's just like boils down to this. People are dying. That's that's a bad thing. Like, come on. This is this is not rocket science. The the state of Israel is is leveraging its history and its prominence and its strong political ties to major Western countries to essentially not even cover up, but just to essentially excuse genocidal violence against the Palestinian people. So, you know, take a stand. 
Let's move on now. Uh, as we sometimes do in our now episodes, we can talk about video games now. And I want to shout out the release of uh, the Talos Principle 2, which is a sequel to the open world puzzle game, the Talos Principle, released by Crow Team in 2014. That's a game that I've always admired because it's a beautifully, it, it's a game with a series of beautifully constructed sort of external 3D puzzle environments and a really fascinating uh, ongoing narrative of, of philosophical conversations about what it means to be human and how, you know, humanity can persist in the wake of extinction and all these sorts of things. And um, it has these two really, really interesting threads, the sort of philosophical angle and the puzzle angle, but it doesn't really do a very good job of integrating them. Uh, and as a result, it can feel, it's not a puzzle game that I would immediately recommend to someone who isn't like super into puzzle games because of that weird dissonance that exists between the the really skillful way that it plays and the really interesting and really fascinating and really well-written philosophical narrative underpinning it. However, The Talos Principle 2 does an amazing job. I've only played 10 hours of it so far. I'm certainly not nowhere near finished it, but it does an amazing job of weaving those two things together. It takes a lot of influence from puzzle games like Portal 2 to incorporate the narrative in a more prominent way and to make the environments more flexible to include a greater range of mechanics. I would strongly recommend it if the idea of, of an open world 3D puzzle game with a strong focus on character and narrative appeals to you. It does a really good job of melding those things in a way that feels natural. It's beautiful as well. It 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 is um it plays wonderful. It looks fantastic. There's obviously been a lot of work that's gone into um, fine-tuning it and smoothing it out. Um, great writing as usual. So if that sounds vaguely interesting to you. I would hardly recommend it. Don't worry if you haven't played the first game because it doesn't matter. The film, the game does not assume any knowledge of the first game at all. It plays beautifully from a completely blind point of view. So yeah, open world puzzles, philosophical themes, a character-focused narrative, a really rich environment. Those are all things that Talos Principle 2 so far does beautifully. So it gets a wreck from me. Uh, Morgan, you are the biggest game of the three of us, though. I know you've been continu continuously playing uh, the new games that strike your attention. Do you want to shout anything out that you've been into recently? Yeah, I did. Uh, I was able to pick up and play through the main story of and, and a good amount of the side content for uh, Spider-Man 2, the third Insomniac-made of PlayStation exclusive Spider-Man game. And it's followed in the trend of Insomniac along the course of the last few years, starting with Spider-Man going to uh, Miles Morales and then uh, the excellent like all-timer 3D platformer that is Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. And yeah, I think this is, it's no doubt a system seller, or at least it will be for some. The team at Insomniac has been able to leverage the power of the PS5 to pull off some really incredible things. I mean, the 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 map of New York that includes Brooklyn and Queens is absolutely massive, and there are no load times, and you can fast travel to literally like pick a spot on the map, and you can fast travel to that exact spot. I don't know why you would do that because it, it this is literally the greatest world traversal mechanic in the history of the medium. So um, yep. <laughs> it's an interesting time to put that ability of immediate rendering on display. It's a really incredible single player title that I think improves on 
nearly every aspect of the original game, which is top 20, top 25 of all time title for me. Maybe the definitive in- Spider-Man story as far as I'm concerned anyway. Yeah, it's certainly in like not in things that are not the comic books. And as far yes. as Peter Parker goes, it's interesting because I think in every aspect of the video gameness of it, it's an improvement on the first one. But I still find myself infinitely more attached to that first game and uh, even to Miles to, to Miles Morales game to some degree. And part of that is the narrative. I felt like certain elements were rushed and they weren't as fleshed out as I was hoping for them to be. I like the presence that the villains in this game have. Um, The two main villains are Kraven the Hunter and then Venom voiced by none other than Tony Todd, who just... Adrenaline momentum! Holy shit! Yes, gotta get him. And it is hands down the definitive version of the character outside of the comic books, although it's not exactly as though we're starred for fucking competition. Um, Tom Hardy and that 70s show being the stiff competition. I enjoy the the version of Venom that's in the Ultimate Spider-Man game that came on GameCube, but it was also a fairly slight version. Uh, But, you know, the person who is in number one for playing Venom at this point in time before Spider-Man 2 was uh, Topher Grace. So it's not it's not as though there are some Joker-level portrayals for a new actor to step up to the plate and compete against. I like what I like their presence in the game. The, the main thing I take away from a villain like Craven is the the literal danger that he represents to both New York and Spider-Man. And I think that's portrayed well. And both Venom and the symbiote suit that Peter gets are meant to reflect the darker parts of that character and then sort of externalize them. And I think that's also done very well, especially with who they make uh, the host of the eventual actual Venom to be. Uh, I think that's pretty well done, if not glaringly obvious, if you've been following the story at this point. I just don't find those characters nearly as compelling as um, the villains from the previous games, Uh, namely Otto Octavius in the first one. Also a definitive incarnation of that character. Absolutely. And the Tinkerer in the Miles Morales game who had a sort of unexpected and direct connection to Miles that I wasn't really prepared for, but I think they pulled off really well. And, you know, there are some choices made throughout Spider-Man 2 that I'm like, I don't know about all that. Maybe it's, it's, it is certainly the overwhelming Marvel 90s-ness of involving a huh. character like Venom at all. That's a little, it's certainly for a kind of, a certain kind of Spider-Man fan, and I'm just not really that fan. Overall, it's a, as, a, you know, a video game experience, it's utterly impeccable. It just has some interesting uh, disparities in how I feel about the way its narrative plays out in comparison to its predecessors. And the next game that I want to talk about is also a new release, is one that's been cooking for 13 years now, is the follow-up to the Remedy game Alan Wake, Alan Wake 2, after much teasing and then eventually revealing throughout their last game and the DLC for their last game, Control, 
that Remedy is building a sort of shared universe uh, between Control and Alan Wake. This was developed in their second expansion called AWE, which in canon stands for Altered World Event. Uh, But, you know, obviously that just says Alan Wake expansion. So... I need a meme that's like, you know, 2011 to 2022, Alan sleep uh, with with, uh, LeBron. And then 2020, 2023. I wake. Alan wake. Alan schlump. Remedy has always been very ambitious when it comes to their narratives uh, seen in games like Alan Wake and Quantum Break and Control. And they've been sort of uh, flexing their muscles in that department for as long as those games have been around. And they're finally sort of tying it all together in this moment for Alan Wake 2, which I'm only about five hours into. I don't know how far along that is exactly, but I've, I've, I've heard estimates of like finishing it as anywhere between 15 and 20 hours. So who knows exactly. And I, I tend to finish games a little faster than... Then the timeframes that outlets will give, I've always wondered why that is. But this is a really, I mean, first, it's the first like genuine survival horror game to come out and like fully embrace that genre and those particular gameplay interests that I've seen that isn't a Resident Evil game or a Resident Evil remake more directly. It's the first original survival horror game to come out in a long time that I think is making an impact. And I think a lot of that is to do with just how compelling the narrative is. It's really difficult to relay, especially because it's a sequel. Um, I've seen some reviews of it that is like, you could play this game without playing the first Alan Wake. And I genuinely have no idea how anyone could say that with a straight face. If I I can ask, what is Alan Wake about? Because I I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. <laughs> uh, I'm just I'm just gonna give you the pitch. Uh, while on vacation in the small town of Bright Falls, a struggling writer must investigate the mysterious disappearance of his wife. While events from his latest manuscript, which he can't remember writing, begin to come true. Okay, so Carpenter meets Lovecraft. And it's all in, you know, the town of Twin Peaks. Yes. Okay. So it feels very Stephen King from that picture. I, 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 yes. Capital Y. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> italicized. Yes. The second game, though, I think is taking from a much wider array of influences. The narrative progression of the original game was fairly straightforward. It was just the things that happened in it were pretty whack. The way that this game is structured, I've literally never played anything like it, and I don't think anything like it exists. It's difficult to get into. There are certainly, like, you ping-pong back and forth between two main characters, one being Alan himself and the other being an FBI agent. The way that that's utilized to both develop the narrative and portray moments in the gameplay is I, I again there's really nothing like it there are live action segments of this game which i thought i would hate but they're i think they're done really well and they're used really sparingly interesting and the perform the performances and direction in them are all really great and really well suited to the material so it, it's genuinely like at times hideo kojima levels of 
let's just fuck around with this medium for a bit. Um, and again, I'm only five hours into it, so I couldn't, I, for one, I couldn't spoil anything if I wanted to, because I'm just barely coming to grips with what is actually happening. The narrative complexity of this game makes something like the original Alan Wake, or at least the narrative, not complexity necessarily, but the the delivery of it, it makes the original game look like a Saturday morning cartoon. There's so much going on in this game that's so interesting to grapple with and so much of it it's a game that i feel like i'm gonna have to play two or three times um just to sort of understand what they're getting at fully this is a game that i would recommend to literally anyone who's interested in the medium um if they have a machine that can power it it's it's gonna fall by the wayside in this already giant year of games like Baldur's gate 3 and tears of the kingdom and spider-man and all of that but it is going it is certainly going to be remembered as something that really pushed the envelope mm. and it's it's just it's really exciting to play through i've just been chomping at the bit for a non resident evil genuine survival horror experience and to have that deliver this alongside with one of the most interesting narratives that i've seen in games in quite a while is really just i i i am living i bought the original game on steam last week it was on sale for like five bucks i'm like i don't know when i'll play this but i've heard great things about it and there's a new new game out so i'm just gonna have this in my library and we'll see what happens um it looks really interesting to me as well you know i I like the I, i like this um seemingly increasing trend of like these really old games getting a sequel like over a decade you know, after the yeah. original game, where so much time has passed that they that the studio have the means, you know, the funding if the original game has kind of become a cult classic or was a success, and the the will to kind of not only just sort of build the narrative, but like basically completely improve every aspect of the original experience and modernize it. That's something which I think Crow Team have done with the Talos Principle too, right? They've created something that completely supplants the original game, just in every single possible way, renders it almost irrelevant. Um, you know, and that's something that uh, is is exciting to see when that happens when you get uh, when studios really take advantage of the demand for a sequel to not just like offer you more but to completely you know sort of build from the ground up you know something more expansive and more fulfilling and something that improves on the specific flaws of the original that may exist for whatever reason um this is a completely again. I have a much more limited frame of reference with games, but so this is going to this is a much more random comparison as well. But it reminds me a little bit of um, one of my favorite games I played last year, uh, which was Psychonauts Two, uh, which was like a, another example of a sequel to a really old game, like a PS2 uh-huh. era game that just took advantage of you know all the massive advancements in game design to make a game that was like you know, at least three times as big and so much more narratively rich and mechanically involving. And I love that. And less jank, just generally. A hundred percent. Like that's the big, that's the the biggest thing, right? Um, and, and the thing that sort of is better than just like, you know, getting a patch in a DLC or whatever is getting a completely new experience. Um, and oftentimes these games as well will um, reckon with the ideas of, of legacy and of like, what comes next within the framework of of whatever world the original game exists in so that's awesome i probably hopefully we'll get to play the original alan wake before too long 
Let's move into now the final thing we want to talk about today. Another really, really special record from like King Gizzard, the theme here is fairly consistent. An artist who's been very prolific, uh, specifically in the current decade. Uh, we've reviewed every record that this artist has put out uh, since the podcast began in June of 2020. The band, of course, I'm talking about is the Mountain Goats, who are back with their 22nd album this week, Jenny from Thebes. Uh, it is a sequel of sorts to their 2002 classic, All Hail West Texas, which is an album that Jake and I did a record club on early last year to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Very proud of that video. And of course, very enamored with that album. So the prospect of a record that in whatever sense revisits that album or at least expands upon it was tantalizing. And of course, that coupled with John Daniel's framework of this record, which is that he called it a rock opera. That is a specific unfolding narrative regarding one of the characters from that original album. As you might be able to guess the character of Jenny from, you know, the song Jenny, uh, a character who has also featured in uh, a few songs, I think in various mountain goats records since then, like nightlight off of transcendental youth. Um, but here, Jenny is revisited in the context of a fully fleshed out story in which she is on the run from the law in the wake of murdering the mayor of the town that she lives in because he's threatening to evict her from the safe house that she runs, uh, which itself is a callback to the song Color in Your Cheeks of All Hail West Texas. Look, there's a number of little moments that reference particular characters or particular scenes or even just particular motifs from all hail west texas but this isn't really a sequel in that sense it is uh a, and you know john has kind of talked about what is a concept album what is a, a concept album i think one, one quote from john that i enjoyed um while researching this album this is he said something to the effect of you know concept album is what people who are too scared to make a rock, rock opera call their album or too scared to use the term <laughs> rock opera basically because what this is is it is a continuous narrative that is more or less in a linear order and though it's confined to a particularly small set of actual substantive events it captures a a state of being on the cusp of a major change in a character's life. And, and more broadly than that, it's about, on a meta level, the idea of what happens to the character in the song you wrote, you know, years down the line. Do they keep existing in some form when the song is gone? What is the... With an artist like John, who has written many hundreds of songs about many hundreds of characters and who's known in his writing style for being very personal, right? For writing in this way that's very much like one character's perspective or someone addressing another character or some kind of intimate moment between two people or of one person with themselves, right? That's the biggest thing about John's writing style is he's never or seldom is he a kind of disembodied third person overseer. He's involved. His songs involve you because they are about people or they, it doesn't matter whether those people are real. It doesn't matter if you have what information you have about them. As long as you feel as though you are in an experience with someone reacting to something or experiencing something internally. And that is so core to the songwriting approach of Jenny from Thebes. Thebes. Some songs are ostensibly from the protagonist Jenny's perspective. Other songs 
uh, seem to be from someone who's interacting with Jenny or someone who knows Jenny. Others, it's less clear. Sometimes you do get disembodied perspectives, such as in a song like Water Tower, which, you know, imagines overseeing the, the lolling corpse of the person that Jenny has murdered as it kind of, you know, passes through the, the irrigation system of the town. And others are, you know, deeply personally involving uh, it's a record that gives John an excuse to kind of indulge this idea of the story that goes untold, essentially. When each song you get is a fragment, a snapshot of a moment in time, what happens after that? And, you know, in some ways, it's almost a kind of rejection of that thought process as well, because you know, on one level, you can read this album as being like, well, not much happens to Jenny after that. You know, she continues to go on her way. She continues to be needed by people. And that's the thing about Jenny in the original song is is she's not the focus of the song or she's not the perspective that the original song is sung from. The original song is about, you know, some guy who loves his motorbike and loves his girlfriend and imagines driving off into the sunset with his girlfriend on his motorbike. And and so Jenny in that context, and also in Nightlight of Transcendental Youth, is this sort of external figure who the narrator of the song kind of projects onto, who needs them, who imagines them to be whatever they need from a person, right? Jenny is whatever the person in the song needs her to be. And so Jenny from Thebes is an album about who is Jenny to the songwriter? Who is the real Jenny? Now, who is the person outside of how she's seen by the people who need her? Or is that all she is? I'd ask some interesting questions on an artistic level about how John, and I guess about how more broadly, if you're a writer, how you conceptualize your characters, how you imagine their world, and how you build their sense of, of who they are outside of how they interact with the people around them or outside of their relationships. It's a beautiful album. I honestly think that, you know, of the four Mountain Goats albums that have come out since we've started the show that we've talked about, I think this is the best of them. Actually, I think each one has been better than the last, honestly. Getting into Knives, I was kind of mixed on. That felt like, to me, one of the most muddled and unfocused records for John. It was an interesting collection of songs, had some really strong moments. But overall, I think, and even looking back now, that's one of the weakest Mountain Goats albums in general. Uh, Dark in here, I thought, was was quietly beautiful, um, brooding, but gave a lot of real space and, and attention to detail for the performances really allowed that the the sound of the Mountain Goats as a band to kind of be the focus more so than the songwriting. Uh, Bleed Out was a you know rollicking thrill ride that took a, a, a really kinetic concept to really, really fascinating places while still feeling so painfully John Darnielle and the way that the songs are written. And then Jenny from Thebes is like, you know, it, it, in, in some senses, it's one of the most insular albums he's ever written. It's one of the most narrowly focused albums he's ever written. But it's also one of the most beautiful in what a rich but humble and small kind of portrait it gives you of a few moments in time from a particular character, really letting you soak in their thought process, you know, their wants, their desires, their fears way that they interact with the people around them, the, the the meaning of life to them, you know, for a very short amount of time. And it spreads this across, you know, 12 tracks in 40 minutes. I think the band sound incredible 
on this album. I think this is one of the best produced Mountain Goats albums. It's richly warm sounding. The band are, they, they're never flashy. The, the like Peter Hughes and John Verster don't play in a flashy way, but there's so much just beautiful texture and and vibrancy to the performances on this record. There are not really many songs that kind of leap out of the speakers at you, but equally, I don't think there's anything on this record that sort of sinks into the background either. Uh, it, it's a modest but but moving album where the well-oiled machine of the mountain goat as a band meets the intimate reflective focus of john daniel as a writer and both feel as though they're on a really equal plane it's hard for me to explain why i think this album is so much better than say uh you know dark in here or even bleed out or uh certainly in league with dragons the other records they've made in those years prior but like to me and maybe it's something to do with the rock opera, which is sort of, the more I say it, it's kind of obviously ironic considering how kind of, you know, smooth and downbeat and not extravagant the album is musically. But maybe it's something to do with the continuous narrative of this record. Maybe it's something to do with the way that its focus on a single character and fleshing out their internal world gives it so much richness and intimacy. But it really feels like front to back, this is the most satisfying album they've released. I think that when viewed as a series of songs or when you kind of isolate some of the individual songs in this record, they might not feel like a whole lot. You know, they might not put be high up in your Mountain Goats song ranking or whatever, but I really feel like the band have mastered the art of crafting and, you know, piecing together these songs such that the totality of it is this vivid and but insular and modest portrait that to me conveys so much about the you know anxiety and the impermanence and the moment to moment fleetingness of, of being human um uh, it's beautiful the more i've thought about it this week the more i've come to just love the craft of it and yeah i i, I think it's a it's a wonderful wonderful album on that note, uh, let us know what you thought of any of the records or games that we discussed today. What did you think? What have you been listening to? Do you have anything you want to add to our conversations? Let us know in the comments below. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, Old Spice. If your grandfather hadn't worn it, you wouldn't exist.